You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. If you're asked, do the rich pay their fair share in taxes, you really do have to ask a couple of other questions. You've got to ask, well, what do we mean by rich? And what do we mean by enough? Now, consider that to be counted in the top 1% of earners in America, you need to be making approximately $380,000 a year. Consider also that that 1% pays more than a third pays more than a third of all of the federal income tax that comes in to the federal government. Is that too much? Is that too little? Well, let's make a debate of it. True or false, the rich are taxed enough. Another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters who will be arguing for and against this motion, the rich are taxed enough. They go in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Our debaters include, on the side arguing for the motion, Glenn Hubbard. Glenn, you are dean of the Columbia Business School. You are also, uh, throughout 2012, you've been an advisor to Mitt Romney's campaign. Uh, Recently, you were profiled in the New York Times, and you were described there as succinct, authoritative, and unabashedly partisan. I want to know, is that fair? Are you unabashedly partisan? And could you be succinct and authoritative? Well, I am, <laughs> I am always succinct. Uh, I, to the partisan, I guess I'm old enough to remember when Bill Bradley and I collaborated on an idea that's not too far dissimilar to tonight, and uh, President Obama's housing plans follow work uh, by me and by a colleague at Columbia. And your partner is? My partner is Art Laffer. Ladies and gentlemen, Art Laffer. Art, you were uh, an economic advisor to President Reagan. You served as chief uh, economist at the Office of uh, Management and Budget. You're best known as the father of supply-side economics because of the curve that is named after you. And I, I think it's fortuitous that your, your last name was not McDougal or Rabinovitz or, or Kowalski because we would be talking about the Kowalski curve. I, your, your name adds a certain lightheartedness to your curve. <laughs> and you are a lighthearted guy. In two sentences or less, what is the Laffer Curve about? Well, number one, the Laffer Curve really is my profile. (laughs) And the other famous thing about me is that I'm a little bit taller than Robert Reich. (laughs) Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. (laughs) The rich are taxed enough. And here to argue against the motion, Robert Reich. You're a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. You are a bit of an intellectual brawler yourself, and you can dish it out. You've also had to take it. Uh, Bill O'Reilly recently called you a communist who secretly adores Karl Marx. (laughs) Neil Cavuto said you're a sanctimonious twit. (laughs) The question is, does this stuff really hurt your feelings? Actually, I don't know how Bill O'Reilly knew that I was a secret admirer of Karl Marx, because if it was secret... (laughs) <laughs> and, and you your say part- the illogic on that side of the aisle I'm- And your partner is My partner is the incomparable uh, Mark Zandi Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Zandi 
Mark John, I'm is, nervous about this now. You're going to be nice, right? You're going to be nice. This is so easy. Yeah, okay, all right. You are the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, uh, and you have one of the most widely followed economic forecasts. That was nice. That was nice. That was yeah, very nice. I'll take that. Ooh, here's here's the other that. part of it. When the bush cuts neared uh, expiration in 2010, you at that time were in favor of their extension initially? Yes, I was, yeah. Now? Uh, I think uh, the president's proposal is the appropriate proposal. Allow the tax rates for upper-income individuals to So expire. you do get to change your mind. I, I am an eclectic economist uh, in that uh, I think uh, the economics depend on the times, and the times now are such that uh, we, we've got to address our fiscal problems. Thank you, Mark Zandi. Ladies and gentlemen, our debaters for this evening. Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. On to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn and speaking first for the motion, the rich are taxed enough. Glenn Hubbard, he is chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy in the Treasury Department. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Hubbard. Thank you. Thanks. I just want to make two points uh, this evening. First, raising tax rates on the rich is both counterproductive and unnecessary to fund the government that Americans have traditionally had. Second, if we do want a larger government, and that's a political choice, the extra taxes to pay for that government will largely come from the non-rich. Now, let's start first on the cost of raising tax rates. Now, I can look out and tell that your favorite course in college was, of course, economics. And you remember from the public finance lecture in that class, you could boil it down to a simple sentence, if you tax something, you get less of it. And economists worry particularly about tax rates that are already high. Now, some of the somethings we get less of are work and saving. And here I just want to offer you a forecast. And I should be honest with you that President Bush once said about me that Glenn can't even forecast the past. And I think, I think what the president meant was data get revised, but you take that for what it's worth. But economists like me and my own academic research have forecast changes in taxable income from changes in tax rates. The responses of high-income taxpayers are not only absolutely high, they are much higher than the responses of other taxpayers. Of particular concern in this regard is the taxation of business income, High business taxes discourage investments in machines and ideas and jobs. More than half of Americans who work in the private sector work for businesses whose owners pay taxes at individual rates. Raising taxes on those business owners discourages hiring, discourages investment. If you make a comparison of next year's tax law with higher rates to the much-ballyhooed Bowles-Simpson plan, you'd find that the lower tax rates in Bowles-Simpson that are financed by broadening the tax base would raise investment in businesses by 54% and raise hiring by 14%. And high tax rates don't necessarily produce revenue. The fact that revenue shares in GDP haven't varied substantially across periods when the top marginal rate was more than 70% from when it was less than or about 28% suggests that we have a lot of lost taxable income and a lot of wasteful tax planning when we have high tax times. The right answer is tax reform to raise money from upper-income households by broadening the tax base and to seek expenditure reform that also reduces benefits for those taxpayers. If you look across the OECD, 
the club of rich industrial nations, you'll find something that may surprise some of you. The U.S. has the most progressive tax system. And in fact, the U.S. tax system actually decreased inequality more than any other country's tax system. So the real choice is the size of government. That's the debate we need to have first. Taxation should be fair, but it should also seek to advance growth and living standards. We can, we should accomplish both fairness and growth without raising tax rates on high-income individuals. For the proposition the rich are taxed enough, the answer is clear, and it's yes. Thank you, Glenn Hubbard. Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. And now here to speak against the motion, I'd like to introduce Robert Reich. He is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at uh, uh, Berkeley and the former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Reich. Uh, I think this is an absurd motion, and I urge you to vote against it when you have a chance to vote against it again. Uh, It's an absurd motion for the following reasons. Number one, we have a huge budget deficit, and the debt is about 85% by some measures of gross domestic product. And the question is, how do you get the deficit down? How do you get the debt down? Almost everybody who has looked at the issue has said it's got to be some combination of tax increases and spending cuts. And the real question here isn't the size of government. The real question here is who is going to bear the brunt of the tax increases? Is it going to be people mostly at the top, or is it going to be people who are in the middle, or is it going to be people who are poor? And I want to tell you, in terms of common sense and logic and fairness, it ought to be people at the top. Why? You can applaud, but don't take away from my time. (laughs) Why? Because, number one, uh, people at the top have never had it so good. I mean, the the percentage of total income in this country going to people who are in the top 1% has doubled over the past 30 years. It used to be 10% back in 1980. It's now over 20%. That is, people in the top 1% are now getting over 20% of total income. The, The richest 400 Americans have more wealth than the bottom 150 million of us put together. It wasn't this way in the 50s or 60s or 70s. It wasn't even nearly this way in the 80s. So if we're going to have to raise taxes, obviously fairness and logic would indicate you raise them on the top. Uh, For at least three decades before 1981, the top marginal tax rate in this country was at least 70%. Under Dwight D. Eisenhower who nobody would have accused of being a socialist. Bill O'Reilly would not have called him a communist. And yet, the marginal tax rate on the top incomes under Eisenhower was 91%. If you get rid of all the deductions and tax credits, it's still the effective tax rate under Eisenhower is close to 56%. Much higher than anybody today is talking about. We're talking, right now, we're talking about the difference between what? uh, A 35% tax rate and maybe going back to Bill Clinton's days? I mean, obviously, given where we were before and where we are now, uh, we shouldn't even be, be raising this question. I mean, they will say that higher taxes have a negative impact on economic growth. Well, guess what? In the three decades before 1981, when taxes were higher on the rich, the economy, on average, per year, grew faster than it has grown since 1981. There was no negative impact on growth. I mean, George W. Bush 
He reduces taxes on the wealthy, saying, oh, we're going to get this huge increase in, in growth, and we're going to get all kinds of jobs uh, using and spouting supply-side, excuse me, Art, nonsense. Uh, and what did we get? We actually had less growth. We had fewer jobs. Even before the Great Crash, uh, we had uh, an economy that did not perform nearly as well as it did under the president. I was very proud to have served under, that is Bill Clinton, uh, who raised taxes. We had the largest and longest uh, boom in modern memory Uh, 22 million new jobs were created. That wasn't a negative growth. That was not a slowdown in growth. Of course you have to raise taxes on the rich if we're going to get on with the business of this country. So please, vote against this silly proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Rice. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. The rich are taxed enough. Stay with us. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. My name is John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, who are arguing it out over this motion, The Rich Are Taxed Enough. You have heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Art Laffer, he is the chairman and... uh, so he is the founder and chairman of Laffer Associates and Laffer Investments. He is known as the father of supply-side economics, was a former advisor to President Ronald Reagan. Ladies and gentlemen, Art Laffer. There are only three reasons you could possibly want to raise tax rates on the rich. You're jealous of them. And Robert may be, but he's one of them. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is you're going to get more revenue and you're going to create prosperity. Those are the other two, and I'm going to land on the the last two and look at the facts if I can. You know, if you look at the periods, let's say, from the the Roaring Twenties, we cut tax rates back then from 73% to 25% in the Roaring Twenties. It was called the Roaring Twenties for a reason. The top 1% of income earners, their taxes as a share of GDP soared during the period of the Roaring Twenties. Then Hoover raised the highest tax rate on the rich from 25% to 63%. Then Roosevelt on January 1936 raised it from 63 to 79% and then up to 83%. There's a reason why it was called the Great Depression. The economy was in a shambles in large part because of the tax increases. The revenues from the top 1% of income earners as a share of GDP went down during this period. You look at the Kennedy period, where we cut the highest tax rate from 91% to 70%. It was called the go-go 60s, if you remember, a boom in the economy. And tax revenues from the top 1% of income earners went up during that period as a share of GDP. We then had the four stooges, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, (laughs) which I consider to be the the largest assemblage of bipartisan ignorance probably ever put on planet Earth. If you look at that period, we had stagnation for 16 straight years. The stock market collapsed during that period. Tax revenues from the top 1% of income earners went down as a share of GDP. Then we had, oh, excuse me, then we had Ronnie. The skies opened, the sun shone forth on the planet. (laughs) The grass turned green, the the animals, they multiplied, the children danced in the tree street. We cut the highest tax rates of everything we could find. If you look at the whole period from 1978 all the way to 
2007. We cut the highest tax rate on earned income from 50% to 35%. We cut the capital gains tax rate. We cut all of these tax rates across the board. We had a boom, and it wasn't just uh, Ronald Reagan, Robert. Uh, Your president, by the way, cut the capital gains tax rate dramatically. Uh, He also got rid of the tax on on, uh, retirees working. He also cut government spending as a share of GDP by more than the next four best presidents combined. We had huge growth during that period. If you look at what happened to the tax revenues from the top income earners, let me tell you really honestly, you're not going to get the money from these guys. They can hire lawyers. They can hire accountants. They can hire deferred income specialists. They can hire congressmen. They can hire senators. They can hi- you know, when you see a group of people hanging with the president, they're in there for some reason, and they find it. You know, what you really want to do is get a low-rate, flat tax where you have no exceptions, no exemptions, no deductions, none of that stuff, and get them out of the business of trying to finagle their tax codes, get them into a position where they create prosperity and economic growth, and that is the way you got to go. Everyone knows that you don't create growth by raising tax rates on the rich. You can't love jobs and hate job creators, and you can't... You can't tax an economy into prosperity. It ain't going to happen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Art Laffer. Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. And here is our final speaker making his opening statement, uh, Mark Zandi. Mark is the chief economist of Moody's Analytics and is one of the most frequently cited economists in Washington. He is also the author of this book, Paying the Price, Ending the Great Recession, and Beginning a New American Century. Ladies and gentlemen... Mark Sandy. Let me begin by saying that, you know, it's obvious the American economy has uh, very serious challenges. Uh, but I would put two right at the top of the list. Uh, the first, the skewing of the distribution of income, consumption, and wealth. And the second is our fiscal problems. Uh, the statistics here are pretty startling. If you take the top 20% of income earners, Uh, they take home uh, over 50% of the nation's income. They consume 60% of the total pie. So from cars to clothing and everything in between, they consume 60%. And they own 90% of the wealth. These are pretty skewed statistics. And the more, more startling thing is they've gotten more skewed over the past 30 years. You know, you go back to the 19, early 1980s, late 1970s, uh, these statistics were very different. I'll just give you one example. I mentioned that uh, the top 20% accounts for 60% of the spending. If you go back to 1980, it was uh, closer to 45%. Last fiscal year just ended. We had a deficit of $1.1 trillion. You can ask, well, what's going on? Lots of things. There's the wars. That's uh, $1.2 trillion over the last 10 years. That's Afghanistan and Iraq. There's the Bush era tax cuts. Uh, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, that cost us $1.6 trillion over a 10 year period. And of course, there's a recession, the Great Recession. And by my calculation, that's cost us about $1.8 trillion over the course of the last 10 years. So we, we got some big problems. Now, the bad news is that that sounds pretty bad. <clears throat> the bad news is that these trends will continue if policymakers don't act. Take the deficits. Uh, If policymakers continue on with current policy, 
Well, the nation's debt-to-GDP ratio is going to go from its current 70 percent, and by the way, it's doubled over the last 10 years from 35 to 70 percent. It'll go over 100 percent by uh, 2025. Now, all good research would show that we got a problem if that happens. It, the world's not going to work for us. At some point, investors are going to balk. Interest rates are going to rise. It's going to affect investment, uh, productivity growth, and our living standards. That has to change. And the income and wealth distribution, uh, the, the forces that are driving that aren't going to – are firmly in place, and they're not going to change. Uh, globalization, technological change, these are all really very good things for our economy. But clearly, uh, it affects the distribution of income and wealth. I'm a person with no skills and talent. I'm getting creamed uh, by trade. I'm competing against low-wage workers in China and, and India. I'm, I'm just getting crushed. Uh, and I, I think the problem here is, is that if we don't address – the skewing of the distribution of income and wealth, the disenfranchised are going to say enough, and they're going to stop the process of globalization, and they're going to rebel against the pace of technological change, and that's going to be to everyone's detriment, including higher-income households. Now, here's the good news. We can solve this problem, and we can solve it together in a combined way. We have to think about addressing our fiscal problems through the prism of the the distribution of income and wealth. So we have to address taxes. And I, you know, I am all for tax reform. Let's close the deductions. Let's close the loopholes. Let's make the tax code fairer, broaden the base. I'm all for it. But let's use the revenue to address our fiscal problems, not to cut tax rates until we're able to do that. I mean, that is the best way. That is the way proposed by Simpson Bowles. That's the way proposed by Domenici Rivlin. That is the bipartisan way. So I look at these things through the, uh, in terms of data, theory, and experience. And my experience says you need to vote against this proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Sandy. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the debaters are arguing it out over this motion, the rich are taxed enough. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address each other and take questions from me and from you in the audience. Our motion is this, the rich are taxed enough. Uh, The team arguing for the motion, Glenn Hubbard and Arthur Laffer, are basically saying that taxing the rich is something that is absolutely going to backfire, that taxes have consequences on behavior, and that the wealthy who would be the provider of jobs by being the builders of factories would be discouraged from doing so. The side arguing against the motion, Robert Reich and Mark Zandi, are saying it's absolutely common sense when you have to close a budget gap to go where the money is. You go to tax the rich because they have a disproportionate amount of the wealth in the country to a degree that they never have before, and that the argument that Uh, taxing the wealthy will lead to depressions and recessions has not been borne out over certain periods of time. And I want to bring to the side that's arguing uh, for the motion that the rich are taxed enough. The question of of fairness, is the system as it is now at tax rates that exist now in a system that, uh, the the one that we have, is it fair? Art Laffer. No, it's not. Uh, It's totally not. And let me use an example, if I may. Warren Buffett. Uh, he was sitting there asking, my friends and I need to have higher tax rates. And I looked at his letter to the New York Times, and he said he paid a little less than $7 million in taxes. And he said his tax rate was 17.4%, which I did the math, hold back, I'm a whiz, but I divided it. He had adjusted gross income of $40 million in that year. I then went to Forbes. His wealth increased from $40 billion to $50 billion. I went to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what you found there is he gave one and three quarters billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, not counting his son's foundations or his daughter's foundation. Now, as a definition of income to me, income is what you spend, what you give away, 
and your increase in your wealth. It's called the Simon definition of income. His income that year was $12 billion, and he paid $7 million in taxes. That is a tax rate of six one-hundredths of 1% on his true income. That is obnoxious. But it's not because of any rates raising would change that tax. You've got to broaden the tax base by getting rid of all these exclusions, deductions, eliminations, and tax true income at low rates. And that is what's fair. Let me go to Bob. I keep on on hearing uh, my good friend Arthur Laffer talk about broadening the base. Now, do you know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about broadening the base? Because it sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, you want to broaden the base. Everybody wants to broaden the base. But, Arthur, <laughs> Arthur, let's be, let, let's be specific. Are you willing to close loopholes that the very rich are mostly taking advantage of? Yes. Okay, now, wait a minute. Isn't that an increase on the... It isn't that a, doesn't that mean a tax increase? No, I'm not talking... Uh, Arthur. I thought we're talking about tax Arthur. rate increases here. Everyone wants to raise taxes by creating prosperity. It would be stupid not to. Arthur. We are Arthur. talking about tax rates here, at least me. Oh, no, 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 wait, wait, Mark wait. Sandy. Wait, wait, wait. The proposition, the rich are taxed enough. Taxed. Oh, what we're arguing is that we want to raise more tax revenue. We prefer to do it by broadening the tax base... I would love to do it. Now, we have to look at it from a clear-eyed perspective. Can we really – we've tried, and we've done it once or twice, to broaden the base efficiently to raise revenue. But if we can't, then we raise tax rates. But everyone would agree that we want revenue, and we want to do it through broadening the tax base. Let's yeah, bring in Glenn three, Hubbard. Three quick points here. First of all, there's been some discussion of Bowles simpson today. I think it's important for everyone to understand the marginal tax rate – top marginal tax rate in the Bowles simpson compromise plan is 28 And that's financed by broadening the tax base. If we have a healthy tax system, the growth that that engenders will, in fact, raise revenue, yes, but it's not by raising tax rates. Second point in fairness is is the OECD point that I made. If you look across industrial countries, the U.S. actually has by far the most progressive tax system. We rely much more on taxes that affect high-income individuals than peer countries, and we do so for the reason I suggested. But the third point I wanted to mention is if you add up all of the tax increases on the rich that are currently being discussed in Washington, it's about 1% of GDP. Robert Rice. Uh, uh, look at uh, First of all, the reason that the European tax system looks more progressive than ours is because the gap between the rich and the poor in Europe is not nearly as great as it is in the United States. We have the highest gap between the rich and the poor. Secondly, Arthur Laffer just admitted something that I hope you heard, and that is that when you close loopholes that are taken advantage of of mostly by the rich, you are, in a sense, raising their taxes the proposition we are debating is whether the rich are taxed enough. Well, Dick, Robert, come on. Uh, uh, come Lafford. on. You've got, you got tax rate reduction. If you did tax rate reduction, broaden the base, and you created prosperity, of course we all want more revenues. We don't want deficits. I mean, no one wants it. How do you get it? No, well, no. Can I, can I you Sandy. agree that we should lower tax rates on the rich? If we generate Mark tax Sandy. revenue. Okay. I but think, I don't I think you just yeah. agreed can, with can us. I, can, I, can I make a few points? Yes, Mark in, 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 uh, in, um, Response to some of the points that are made. First, Glenn, I, I think we need to address uh, spending. Most of the onus of addressing our fiscal problems is on the spending side. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, 
But all of these proposals also say we needed to generate revenue. We, you know, this has got to be a shared burden uh, in terms of spending and, and tax. The second thing I'd say is that if we can raise tax revenue by lowering the deductions and credits in the tax code, and there's some very creative ways of doing it, I'm all for that. Um, but I think it's also important that we do this in a way that we're clear-eyed in a political sense, a political economy sense, because we know it's going to be really hard to, to scale back those deductions and credits in the tax code. It's, you know, for every credit and deduction in the code, there is a constituency that literally will go to war for it. So we know that. So in that context, we, may, we have to think about, well, maybe we have to raise marginal rates to generate that revenue. Or for example, as a, the, as, a, as a temporary thing, not as a long-term principle of the way. Yeah, you absolutely. Let's let bring in Glenn Hubbard, please. You can't do that either in the short term or the long term. So let's be clear: the current budget has spending three full three percentage points higher than traditional levels in the country. It is proposing to raise taxes on high-income people by one percent of GDP, and we just don't know what happens to the other two. In the long term, just Social Security and Medicare alone are 10 times the cost, even of the most optimistic tax increases. So taxes aren't even an important part of this conversation. And to the extent that they are, they would have to follow the European model, which is to raise them on everyone, a consumption tax. uh, uh, We're getting tangled in a semantic dispute. And I want to be very, very clear about what we are actually arguing. There are two ways of raising revenues. One is raising marginal income tax rates, and the second is closing loopholes. Now, the question really is, when you do one or both of those, are you going to have the rich paying more, or is the middle class going to have to pay more, or the poor going to have to pay more? What Mark and I are saying is that when you get more revenue, either by closing loopholes or by raising marginal rates, the rich should end up paying more as a matter of logic, as a matter of fairness, as a matter of history, as a matter of common sense. All right, Art Laffer, so your opponent is saying this is a debate about, about, this is a debate about whose hide is it going to come out of, and he's yeah. saying it needs to come out of the rich's hide. Let's just talk about it. Of course you do. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with the, more, uh, the rich paying more in taxes, which is exactly what happened, what I showed in the numbers there during the Roaring Twenties. The rich paid more as a share of GDP by lowering rates dramatically. Under the the Reagan-Clinton period, the rich paid a lot more by lowering rates dramatically and creating prosperity. That is the dream. And that's Uh, what you have to do. I I, I want to point out, this is an interesting historic footnote. Uh, Arthur, you keep going back to the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. There were two years over the last century in which the richest Americans took home the highest percentage of total income in America. Those two years were 1928 and 2007. Now, does it strike anybody here interesting (laughs) as a matter of what happens when the rich take home so much of the total income? Does it strike anybody here that there may be a consequence? There may be. But Robert, Robert, how how do you relate that to this motion? Land that on on this motion. It's relevant to the motion in the following way, because behind this motion is a question about the relationship between fairness and economic growth. And my contention, and the contention that I think Mark agrees with as well, 
is that there is not an inconsistency between fairness and economic growth. In fact, the rich would do better with a smaller share of a rapidly growing economy than a large share of an economy that's dead in the water. Why? Because it's dead in the water because the distribution of income is so crazy. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. The rich are taxed enough. Welcome back to the program. Mark very helpfully earlier referred to a lot of structural problems facing the country. But it is very important to ask the question, how is it that raising marginal tax rates on high-income people gets at any of those structural problems? You referred to globalization. There are skill gaps among low-income people. I'm not connecting the dots. Okay. From your tax policies to dealing with a problem that actually should concern America. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's important that we address the distribution of income and wealth, because if we don't, we're going to have the situation that Arthur uh, joked about, that the wealthy will capture the system. He joked about buying a senator, buying a congressman. I don't think that's a joke. I mean, I it's think not. that's a very serious issue. It's happening. And we can't allow that to happen. So Agreed. This, this is the reason why we have to be very, very cognizant of this. We have to have enough revenue that goes to the government to be able to build out the infrastructure we need. We, we need the revenue to go to the government sufficient to educate the population and bring the skill attainment of those workers that are gr- getting creamed by China up so that they can compete in a global economy. Glenn Hubbard. <laughs> if you had the size of government that we had before the financial crisis, the normally functioning tax system will roughly fund that size of government. If you'd like in your description of more for education and more for infrastructure, if what you mean is you'd like a bigger government, no. I'll come back to the point I made before. You can't fund that on taxing the rich. That's just math. But Can I specific. Just, why, why not? Why not? Because the, if you look at all of the tax increases that are currently being proposed, and I haven't heard any politician on the left say they'd like even more, that's about 1% of GDP. The present budget has an elevated spending level of more than 3% of GDP, and that's before the entitlement program. But isn't there still a lot of upward room to raise rates on, on the rich? I think there's a lot of pushback both from economists and probably more important from politicians on the tax increases that are being proposed now. Even if you Gentlemen, let me pull something out of the exchange we've just been through and bring to Mark Zandi. Basically, Glenn Hubbard was saying that he understood what your aspirations were for uh, funding certain kinds of government programs that would be restorative, education, etc. And he said that you can't get it from the wealthy, that that politically you can't get it for the reason Bob gave, because it's a closed loop. I want to know economically... Could you get it? Because their argument is that economically you can't because the, the behavior of the wealthy would change in such a way that they just wouldn't, they wouldn't participate. Can you take that on? First of all, I think the best way of approaching this is broadening the tax base. But if we have to go down the – if we can't raise the revenue, the trillion in revenue through tax, tax broadening, I'm all for raising marginal rates. But when I talk about raising marginal rates, I'm talking about putting them back to the, the era when – when this fellow was labor secretary and generating 22 million jobs. I'm talking about 35% today, 
to 39.6% on personal income. And you can, and again, this is my view experience. I don't think American, the American wealthy are going to move offshore uh, and, and this, not pay their taxes. Uh, look at, uh, anticipate. Three, three, three quick points. First of all, again, you don't have to what, be that quick. He was pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what Art and I are arguing is to the extent that revenues come from faster growth from a reform system, we're fine for that. You, you keep moving the goalposts, but you're talking about marginal rates and, and not that. Second, there are significant real effects of raising taxes on business owners. There's a huge body of research out there. You might not like it, but it is there. And the third, the question to you about your aspirations. Again, Social Security and Medicare, there's two programs, are on track to rise 10 percentage points of GDP. Let's go to some questions from the audience. And, uh, yeah, right there, yeah. Thank you. Um, Jackie Hatler here. I wanted to direct this question to you guys. Um, I wanted to know what you guys think about um, small businesses. Are they really going to be affected um, if the tax rate increases? I love small businesses. Uh, my, my father was a small businessman. He was small, and he was a small businessman. Uh, uh, but look, if we, uh, if we, for example, as a nation decide... We are going to continue the Bush tax cuts for people earning under $250,000. But the income over $250,000 is going to go back to the Clinton kind of rates. Uh, is that going to be such a huge burden for small businesses? Well, only about 2 to 3% of small businesses earn over $250,000. And we're only talking about that amount of income over $250,000. So, so a small business person who, owns, uh, who earns $251,000 that year is only going to be paying the Clinton rate on $1,000 of income. And by the way, that Clinton rate was not so onerous. Small businesses did much better under Bill Clinton than they've been doing recently Glenn over Hubbard. the last 10 years. The reference to a small number of small businesses uh, being at the top misses the fact that about half of the people in the top 1% are business owners. And if you look at the calculation that I made for you, if you compare what's going to happen to investment and hiring by those individuals, because they're paying taxes at individual rates, you're looking at changes on the order of 50% in investment and 14% in hiring. Okay, another question. Can I... Just just to reinforce the point, my story about being the, the egghead entrepreneur... I was an S-chapter corporation. I was one of those folks in the top 3%. And my experience says, no, it doesn't matter. I, you know, I'm driven by lots of other things. And raising marginal rates from 35 to 40 or 45, it's not going to make a difference in terms of my thinking. So, no. And I don't think the data suggests that this is going to have a significant impact. One other thing about small business that I just think it's very important to point out, that most small businesses are proprietorships. They're professionals like doctors and dentists, uh, plumbers, electricians, they're not making $250,000, and they're not going to be affected by this. The folks that are going to be affected by this are there are hedge fund owners, there are uh, different kinds of small businesses that, you know, they're motivated by different things. So the, the, when people talk about small business, they're thinking about something totally different than the folks that will be affected by the higher marginal rates that we're talking about here. Gentleman in a blue, uh, blue necktie. Thank you. Uh, my name is Phil Melville. A question broadly for the group. I think you all believe growth is good, but I would like to understand that. I'm not sure about art on that one. (laughs) But uh, um, the IMF IMF recently put out a paper talking about multipliers, that tax increases have a greater impact 
on the economy than spending cuts. Do you believe that's true? And if so, why would you advocate increasing taxes when they have a disproportionate effect on the economy? Mark Sandy. If we're debating the uh, impacts of taxes and spending, I mean, uh, my view is the spending multipliers are larger than the tax multipliers. In general, on average, spending multipliers are larger. Now, as you, but you've heard me before say, I, I think most of the onus of deficit reduction, of achieving fiscal sustainability, has to be on the spending cuts. Because if you look, again, at current spending and current revenue, it's mostly the spending that's out of line relative to our historical norms. And we have to get the spending down. And let's let Glenn Hubbard. And Glenn is right. In the longer run, we have to address our entitlement programs. And I'll, find, I'll end here. We also should do that through the prism of what it means for the distribution of income and wealth. Glenn Hubbard. I like your question a lot because sometimes we slip into the use of a word like deficit, which is an accounting term. What we really mean is taxes and spending. Now, your question gets to the core of why it's important to separate those two parts. There's a big difference between changing the path of fiscal policy by raising taxes and, and cutting spending. And I think the bulk of the evidence would suggest, yes, that the tax increase way would be more costly. On the multipliers, I'll tout my intermediate macro textbook. You can turn to the table of multipliers, and you'll see that point pretty much from the literature. Ma'am, right in the middle there. Who's the broader base? What is encompassed in this broadening base that we keep okay. talking about? That's a great question. That's, 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 a, that's a great question. That's exactly... Yeah. Art laugh. Art laugh. Let that's, me exact, tell you, that's exactly what we have been debating, Robert. And you can broaden the... It's Art Laffer's turn to talk. My turn? <laughs> and it will you be can. your turn right after that, Robert. I did Jerry Brown's flat tax when he ran for president in 1992. We got rid of all federal taxes. They, you should look at every tax, not just income taxes. We got rid of the income taxes, corporate taxes, payroll taxes, employer and employee. We got rid of excise taxes, capital gains, estate taxes, tariffs. And the only ones we left were sin taxes, which are really small. And in their stead, we had two flat rates, one on business net sales and one on personal unadjusted gross income. If you did that at full employment, you could have a flat tax rate of 11.8% and have it statically revenue neutral. That's it. You so wouldn't even have the, to file who, a tax return. Who's in the base that's boom. been broadened? Everyone's Arthur. in the base there. All forms where you tax Warren Buffett on his $12 billion income that year, not on $40 million, which is what he had in his AGI after all the legal tax but the, but the mom with oh, wait a minute. But the mom living on $20,000 who needs to buy her cigarettes would what? also... The mom living on $20,000 with four kids who wants to buy cigarettes... Yeah, but she'd have a job. Yeah. You know, that's all right, the whole I, point. Wait a minute. I want to talk to your question because the reality is that Average Americans, most people, when they fill out their income taxes, they don't itemize their deductions. Uh, The wealthy have a lot of itemized deductions. They take a lot of tax credits. Uh, They use a lot of accountants and tax planners who are taking advantage of every single possibility. So if you are broadening the base in such a way that you are closing some of those opportunities for tax avoidance or tax mitigation... And the net effect is that the wealthy end up paying more than they were paying before. Then you are increasing their taxes. And if you support that, 
you don't support tonight's proposition. Glenn, Glenn Hubbard, I, I need you to be terse because we're yeah, out of time. Basically, just to try to really answer your question. There are two things that are on the table being discussed, I think, by tax reformers. One would be a, some sort of cap uh, on deductions that could be a dollar, it could be a percentage of your income. Another would be the approach Bowles Simpson took, which really cut back a lot on the deductions of affluent people, but left them more in place for moderate income people. Either one of those uh, would get you there. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we go on to round three. Round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. It is their last chance to try to change your mind before you vote for the second time and choose the winner of this debate. Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Robert Reich. He is Robert Reich. He is the professor of professor at UC Berkeley and former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. Let me let me just say I, I think that if you look at the proposition here that we are debating tonight, the proposition is simply that the rich are taxed enough. And what Mark and I have been saying, whether you couch it in terms of closing loopholes, uh, broadening the base, increasing marginal income taxes, doesn't matter how you cook it. The, still, the question is, given that we have a huge budget deficit, somebody has got to pay a little bit more, even if you do a huge amount of cutting of the budget and cutting spending, you still are going to have to raise some revenues. And if you believe as I do and as Mark does, that the rich should bear the lion's share of that revenue raising, then you've got to, please, for the good of your children and your grandchildren, for the good of America, as solid patriots, you have got to vote against this proposition because it is, in its entirety, given where we are in this country right now, this proposition is simply Ludicrous. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Robert you. Reich. Our motion is the rich are taxed enough. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Glenn Hubbard. He is the dean of Columbia Business School and economic advisor to Mitt Romney. I'd ask two questions of our partners tonight. First, what evidence suggests that the economic consequences of higher tax rates on the successful could improve the employment or the income prospects of the rest? And second, is the nation better off by raising tax rates on high-income people or by balancing fairness and prosperity, asking sacrifice from the affluent through the growth consequences of tax reform and reforming our spending programs to be a safety net? The question at hand tonight is a broad one and an important one. This country has long identified with equality of opportunity, and I worry a lot right now in our country about economic opportunity. I'm fond of an example that illustrates my worry with an image of the nation as a tall building with the bottom flooded out, the penthouse doing fine, and the elevator broken. We could throw rocks at the top or we could fix the elevator. I think most Americans make the latter choice viscerally. And to the points Art and I have made tonight, throwing rocks doesn't fix the elevator and to torture the analogy can't pay for it. We need to think about growth and fairness, The case for the proposition tonight is very strong. Tax rates should not rise. The rich are taxed enough. Thank you, Glenn Hubbard. Our motion, the rich are taxed enough. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Hey, you know, I uh, I actually am 
cheered by our conversation. I think there's a lot of commonality here. I think there's a lot of agreement. Uh, I think we agree that our fiscal problems need to be addressed, that these are key to our long-term economic success. I think we agree that the distribution of income and wealth is a problem. Um, I think we agree that uh, to address these problems, we, we do need to cut back on future government spending, that the entitlement programs uh, do need reform, and, and we do need to think about it in the context of uh, who's going to pay for that uh, reform. Uh, the, the burden of that should probably fall on higher-income households. But here's where we disagree, and that is that we, Bob and I, believe that we need to raise tax revenue, that this has to be a balanced approach to getting us back to something that we would consider appropriate and normal. But we need to be clear-eyed about this. And uh, if we can't do it in the way you would like and I would like, we still need to raise the revenue, and we need to raise the revenue by taxing the rich. So you have to vote against this proposition. The the rich are not taxed enough. Thank Thank you, you. Mark Zandi. And that is our motion, the rich are taxed enough. And here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, Art Laffer. He is founder and chairman of Laffer Associates and Laffer Investments. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to congratulate Bob and Mark for trying to change the proposition to get a different one. The question is tax rates. And frankly, what Glenn and I have been arguing are, why would you ever want to raise tax rates on the rich if you know it's going to give you less revenue and a less prosperous economy? It's as simple as that. And the evidence out there documents that time and time again. One of the ways I would do is lowering tax rates, but doing it by broadening the tax base to keep revenue neutral, but creating the growth, prosperity, which would give higher revenues, but with lower rates. If you believe in lower rates and a broader base, you must vote for the proposition that the rich are taxed enough. Thank you. Thank you, Art Laffer. And that concludes our closing statements. And uh, now it is time to learn which side you feel argue best. Okay. So... You have listened to the arguments for and against on this motion. The rich are taxed enough. We had you vote once before the debate and once again afterwards on where you stand on this motion. Here are the results. The team whose numbers will have changed the most will be declared our winner. Before the debate, 28% were for the motion, 49% against, and 23% undecided. After the debate, 30% are for the motion. That's up 2%. 63% are against. That is up 14%. 7% are undecided, but this means the vote goes for the team arguing against the motion. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR.